Welcome back to Rewind of the Living Dead. I am Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, here we are with part four of our ongoing Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise series. And tonight's episode, we will be talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, which is a direct prequel to the remake. Uh, these movies came out in the early 2000s, early 2003, and then 2006, respectively. Uh, similar cast, at least in some parts of the two movies, in terms of the Hewitt family, not the Sawyer family. Uh, right. And we are going to talk about both films tonight, um, which were the continuation of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, not carrying on anything to do with the original films, but this is essentially a remake. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're in the reboot time. So we've talked a little bit on this show about the wasteland that is the early 2000s when it came to horror films. And uh, and I'm talking about a lot of original stuff that was coming out at the time was pretty uninteresting in general. But when the Texas Chainsaw remake came out, it really piqued my interest because up to that point, we hadn't, we hadn't started remaking classics. We weren't doing that yet. It came, it came right up at, the, at this time, and appropriately enough, the original Texas Chainsaw in 74 sort of kicked off the slasher thing. The Texas reboot that we're going to start talking about here in a second kicked off the classics reboots. Now, was it successful? We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But really, it, it kicked it off. It started with that. Um, then you had like The Hills Have Eyes came out. The, a Friday the 13th reboot came out. Um, sequels to Hills Have Eyes, and then the, this prequel, Texas Chainsaw: The Beginning, which we're also going to talk about tonight. They this was the, this was a time where they were like, man, we don't have any ideas. Let's start rebooting stuff. <laughs> so they start with, of course, what we've said many times on the show is probably one of the greatest films of all time. Definitely one of the greatest horror films of all time. Yeah, it's and listen, here's the thing, and this is going to obviously dominate a lot of our conversations tonight. We're going to talk about both these movies in depth, but I also want to be clear about another aspect that we're going to touch on quite a bit tonight, which is the reboot and the remake in the horror genre, because that has started to happen more and more. And really, it's not actually that unusual, because as I was looking last night trying to think of like the best remakes and reboots in horror history, I was reminded that John Carpenter's The Thing is technically a yep. remake of a classic thing movie thing from another world i believe is what it was called so i can't sit here and take a dump on remakes because there are good remakes out there it was also well, the one yes. that, the one that always pops in my head without fail is dawn of the dead the Zack snyder dawn of the dead uh, because even though it is called dawn of the dead and it takes place in a mall it is very very loosely related to anything that george a romero did it doesn't take place in pittsburgh the only two things that are similar are zombies and it takes place in a mall uh, but they did right. re they did technically quote unquote remake Dawn of the Dead, but that is a fantastic movie and a movie that they could have easily called something else and it would definitely stand on its own and be a very, very quality movie. So there are mm -hmm. good remakes or, or reboots or however you want to call it out there. Uh, so it David can be Cronenberg's done. The Fly. That's yeah. another great one. Yeah, it can be done is my point. Oh, absolutely. No, it can't, it can be done. And like, I'm not somebody who shits on reboots and remakes. I don't like as, as a habit, I don't. I'm going to be critical of it as a film, but I never I never start by sitting down going, well, it's stupid that they remade this. A lot of people just that's that's where they turn off the the that's where they put the wall up, I should say, is sometimes they just don't want something remade. 
It has nothing to do with whether they think it's going to be a good film or not. They're just like vehemently against it. I'm not. I'm always game. I'm always game to see if filmmakers can redo something in their in its in their own idea. And you've you've given some amazing examples. The thing, the thing is one of the greatest horror films of all time. It's a remake. The Fly, David Cronenberg's The Fly, amazing. It's a remake. The Blob, which we're going to have to get to, was a remake of a 1950s movie called The Blob, and that's that's an awesome remake. There's plenty of awesome remakes. So I was always open-minded to this. I was all and especially because I absolutely love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So to see a remake of it, I was I was um I was optimistic. I, I didn't know I didn't know if they were gonna be able to meet my expectations because at the time it was one of my apps and it still is one of my absolute favorite films, but at the time it was like so important that they got it right. And I gotta say. The Texas Chainsaw, we'll call we'll call that one the reboot, right? Uh, we have the reboot in the beginning tonight. The one with Jessica Biel is the reboot. Well, let's 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 back up for just a second. It starts with Platinum Dunes. Now, what is Platinum Dunes? Platinum Dunes is a production company put together by none other than action extraordinaire Michael Bay, who wanted to put together a production company that did lower budget fare. Now, right off the right off the bat, the easiest way to make money in Hollywood, I shouldn't say the easiest, there's no easy way, but a good way to make money in Hollywood is to do a low-budget horror film that turns over an impressive amount of money. You do it for cheap, and it usually gives you some pretty big returns. That's been a formula that's been going on for about 30, 30 years up to the point of this remake. This movie was made for $9.5 million. It made worldwide $109 million. That's massive success. That's a yeah. huge, huge success. Yeah, I mean, that's, like I said, I mean, there was, like I said, this period of time where they started coming out with these movies and, and they started to make money. And, and that's really, I mean, again, and, and, it, and it spawns also, let's not forget, I I come back to this a lot, and I've mentioned a lot on this, on this show in the past, but I think a lot of it comes from the success of the Scream franchise. When Scream came out, and I think it was 96, yeah, that really relaunched the whole, the whole slasher franchise. Uh, you know, they did subsequent sequels, of course, and those movies did very well. And I think that was kind of like the beginning of like people being like, oh, yeah, we can do these slasher films again and make money. The problem is, is that you, you know, to create a Scream franchise, that was kind of like lightning in a bottle to do a really, really unique uh, take yeah. on that particular genre. So rather than get creative and make your own slasher film, everyone said, well, why don't we just remake or redo what has already been done? And as you mentioned, Friday the 13th eventually gets redone. Nightmare on Elm Street eventually gets redone. Yeah. You know, they redo so many of these. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, like with the slashers, and again, I'm with you. I don't think it's, I don't think it's easy to just condemn a remake or a reboot because I think there are good ones out there. We just named a few with the fly and with, with Dawn of the dead and with the thing. I mean, there are good ones out there, but I have yet, and in my head anyways, I have yet to see one remade of a slasher that seems to get it right or understand what was going on in the original or capture any of the essence of the original movie. I mean, it's just kind of crazy when you think about it, like how how little they, they, they seem to get. <laughs> it's like how little they seem to actually know what made Texas Chainsaw Massacre such a terrifying movie. Um, 
And, and 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 really what they end up doing with the first one, the reboot, the 2003 movie, is they just, and much the same obviously in 2006 as well, is they just add in a whole ton of gore to kind of try to gross you out. And, and really, and we talked about this when we did a review of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre several weeks ago, there's not a lot of gore in that movie. There really isn't. No. I mean, there's very little blood. There's very little anything like that. And again, you can credit that to a you know low budget and they couldn't really afford a lot of effects, but it still worked. You didn't need just a bunch of blood and guts for the sake of blood and guts. And in these movies, everything is wet and drippy and slimy and there's blood and there's guts. I mean, the opening scene at the beginning where he's chopping the meat, I mean, you know what they're doing. They're literally just trying to gross you out. And I'm all for the right kind of gross out horror. I understand where its place fits in the genre. But like when you're doing it for that purpose, I can see right through it. I can, you're, you're literally, all, it feels like they had a chalkboard or a, or a dry erase board in Platinum Dunes. They're just like, okay, what are the, what are the best horror tropes of all time? And how many can we stick in these movies? Oh, I guarantee they did it. That's an actual technique. It's called whiteboarding. That's exactly what it's called. You, you, and, and it's something you do in a writer's room. You, you, you set up a, a couple of whiteboards and you just go, what are all these elements that need to happen in this film? And they start listing things. It's like, okay, it's Texas Chainsaw. You need meat. Make sure to put meat up there. Okay, great. We're putting meat up there. What else? Uh, we need skin. Okay, skin's good. Okay, cool. It's 2003. Everybody needs to look like a like an Abercrombie and Fitch model. Got it. Okay, we're going to put that in there. <laughs> Hair needs to be greasy. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. Okay, um, uh, how many dolls can we get? How many like old baby dolls can we get and just litter the entire set with baby dolls? Oh, yeah, we get about 600 of those and put every one of them in, in, the, in the movie. I mean- uh, so this this movie was made by first-time filmmaker Marcus Nispel. This was his first movie. Can you imagine? It's his first movie. It's the screenwriter, Scott, Sco- Scott Kosar's first movie. Can you imagine going, your first movie is going to be a remake of the very, like, the, the seminal slasher film, the, the, the best of the best. Now, I'll give Marcus Nispel some credit. He originally said no. Do you know why he said yes? I, I remember, I think I read this and now I'm drawing a blank. Please tell the story because I did read this actually yesterday. I remember reading about this. Yeah. So Marcus Nispel's a, a music video director, has a long, long history in music videos and uh, and did a lot of slick music videos that you've probably seen. Um, he says no to the, the film. And then here comes Daniel Pearl. Who's Daniel Pearl? The original cinematographer of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre back in 1974. He says, hey, come do this film. I'm there to back you up. We're going to do our own thing. We're not going to remake that film. There's no point in remaking that. I'm not going to shoot it the way I shot that docu style. We're going to bring in your music video sensibilities. We're going to bring in, you know, my my long career as a cinematographer. We're going to do our own thing. So Marcus came back to the idea of it because he had he had an original piece of the puzzle. He had Daniel Pearl. But they they really didn't. They really they really kind of went off on their own direction. This movie is very to me very slick. It's shot very slickly. You know, the first one is very gritty. Feels real. Feels docu style. I, I I many times have said it's got the American New Wave feel, like where it doesn't. It feels like it's really happening as opposed to um uh, like 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 it's on a set. It doesn't feel like it's on a set. This feels like it's on a music video set. It literally feels that way. Couple that with your main producer being Michael Bay, 
who does actually have a very specific and very deliberate filmmaking style, right? Like everybody trashes Michael Bay and it may not be your cup of tea. It's not necessarily my cup of tea, but he has a very specific style. He uses a very specific editing style. He uses very specific lens choices. All these things are certainly, I'm, I'm sure that he had a very heavy influence on like how this movie had to look and it came out a little too slick. It, uh, there's way too many close-ups, which you actually don't, you don't necessarily want in a in a horror film. You want like sparingly, unless you're like doing an Italian horror or something like that. But you don't necessarily need like the face filling the frame. You kind of want to see and feel the atmosphere. A lot of that's missing in this film. This film almost feels like an action film, don't, don't you? I mean, especially that opening scene. Let's talk a little bit about that opening scene. They do kind of re envision the the kids in the van picking up the hitchhiker you want to talk about that a little bit yeah they pick up so you know they re-envision i mean basically they're you know again kids going across the state of texas this time they're going to a leonard skinner concert which is i'm not even going to comment on that uh talking about like just cliche i guess is what i'm getting at not that there's anything wrong with leonard skinner i actually enjoy leonard skinner i'm just saying like talk about cliche uh, but they go and they're going to a Leonard Skinner concert and then they find out that they actually came back from Mexico and one of them uh, uh, bought two pounds of weed, which is a weird side story. They tried this shoehorn yeah. in there because of the, the whole sheriff angle, which was really pointless. Uh, but then, you know, they, they're basically driving and then the one couple, the Jessica Biel character is making out with her boyfriend and they almost hit a hitchhiker. Well, not a hitchhiker, just a woman walking on the road. She's not even a hitchhiker. She's just walking right. and like stumbling along on the road, like mumbling to herself. And they more or less, you know, basically say, we're going to take you to get help. And then as she's sitting in the back of the back of the van, she's muttering to herself and the, everybody tell her they're all going to die. And then she suddenly pulls out a gun from where i don't know i assume she had a hit yeah, i don't know how she hit that yeah he had a gun somewhere hidden up there and she she kills herself it's a suicide in the in the in the van and i'll tell you this at first at first when i first saw this movie in the theater and i saw this in the theater back in 2003 i was you know out of college at that mm -hmm. point i was Man. right there and so i saw it in the theater and i thought to myself okay at the very beginning okay a big reason why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre worked, the original, why it was so scary, was that original scene with the hitchhiker. It was so creepy, and he was so unnerving, and him grabbing the arm and cutting it and talking about you know the picture and setting it on fire. It was just really weird, creepy stuff, and it just yeah. set the tone for the entire movie. Now, I will say, when I first saw this one, I thought, okay, this is an interesting choice, because they're basically, this is your warning right here that some really bad things are going to happen to you, and this woman was so traumatized that rather than go on she kills herself so at, at the beginning i thought maybe this is this is their dawn of the dead they're gonna make it so you know they're gonna make it different and yet the same and it's gonna work it just doesn't work i mean it just doesn't what this does what this tries to set up especially with the arrival of the sheriff later on it just doesn't it doesn't hold the same kind of eeriness that the hitchhiker does in the original which is such a huge important part of that movie that sets up everything else that comes after that and this really doesn't i know what they were going for it just didn't work yeah, I, I had kind of the same feeling when I first saw it in the theaters, right? So I'm examining this thing in the theater like I'm I'm like I'm combing over every detail when I'm watching it in the theater. I did appreciate that they went a different direction. I didn't know that what was going to happen after that point because I, to me I was like, okay, you're not trying to redo the hitchhiker thing. That's fine. I understand and, you know, let's be honest. I don't think anyone can do it successfully. It was done the right way once. We don't need to rehash it. So I was okay with that. It's what it's everything that comes up after that, 
which is this slog, this like these dragged out scenes with, by the way, uh, we should mention R. Lee Ermey is truly the star of these films. Um, he, he plays he plays the quote unquote sheriff of this abandoned town and he terrorizes these kids. And it's kind of kicks off with them trying to get it, get the police to take this woman who committed suicide. And it all kind of spirals from there. The problem is it doesn't necessarily spiral. It sort of meanders for a very long time to, to the point that you're just like bored. And it's <laughs> like, oh, this went from like trying to be an action movie to now being like a suspense thriller. Uh, you know, and then it's a only it's about an hour in before you even get some real Leatherface, you know, you know, which is, by the way, the most important thing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre is ultimately Leatherface. And it took an hour before we even got there. So by the time you get there, you're just sort of exhausted and bored, even though it's like R. Lee Ermey, who's, you know, very famously from Full Metal Jacket, a great character actor. Uh, I, I actually enjoyed a lot of his scenes and he's got a lot of great little one liners and such. But. I was just bored at that point. I just, it, it, I wasn't watching a horror movie. I was watching something else. Yeah, it was, it's, it's really weird because again, there, one of the thing, and again, I, the reason why we can compare this is because they're literally remaking the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I keep going back to the right. original and listen, I'm with you. You don't have to, you, you don't have to reinvent the wheel and, and you can make a quality remake. We've said that time and time again, so I don't want to just continue to shit on this movie and make it sound like I can't, you know, uh, I can't right. you know, respect what this uh, what this movie does. But one of the things that made the original so good was the, the, the sense of dread that the, the hitchhiker presents, but also the way that the kids are still after they get rid of this guy and they move on, they've kind of forgotten about him. They've kind of moved on. They're going to see their you know, their old place in Texas and they're kind of out there having fun and they're, and they're oblivious to what they're walking into. And that makes it that much scarier because you can believe that their senses weren't that heightened. When you look back at it, you say, wow, you really should have paid attention to that hitchhiker. But at that moment, right. you're kind of thinking, well, they've kind of, you know, they went through a really creepy, weird moment. They moved beyond it. Now they're kind of, you know, footloose and fancy free again. And then they, you know, the world falls down on their heads. And, and you know, when a woman kills herself in the back of your van, you know, immediately your, your senses are going to be raised. You're going to be firing your synapses on all cylinders. Uh, and you're going to yeah. be wary, I would hope, unless you're a complete utter moron, you're going to be up to like <laughs> thinking what's going on. And I understand, you know, you introduce the sheriff character because you want them to trust the law enforcement, not knowing that he's actually a member of the family or whatever. I get all that. But again, it's so predictable that it just, it just, like, I remember, again, I've talked about it before. And I'm again, I'm not saying it to rehash the original podcast of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but you know, in that scene where where the the guy walks into the house and Leatherface just pops out of nowhere and smacks him with that hammer and he falls mm -hmm. to the ground, he's twitching and oh god, that I mean that seems that to this day it sticks with me. I still think about that as like one of the greatest moments in horror movie history, or well, movie history, but horror movies specifically of that moment. Yeah. Just the oh my god, just the visceral realness of that scene of him. And then, like I said, what the creepy part is the guy's flopping around on the ground, twitching and convulsing from you know. Obviously, the damage his head has taken from this hammer, and they tried in, in in desperate ways to recreate that sort of in this movie with the sledgehammer, but it just doesn't work, and it takes so long to get there. And like, yeah. you show up to the house, and the girl goes in, and, and she's trying to call for help, and it's just it takes so long to get there. And at that mm -hmm. point, 
I'm thinking, why are you like, you're, you, are you the dumbest kids ever? Like you deserve to get ch- chainsawed because you're <laughs> literally walking in to the, it's just like, oh, it just, it boggles my mind. They set it up so uh, dumb in, in the way that they did it and made these kids look like just utter morons why they would walk into it after someone literally just killed themselves in the back of her van. Yeah, listen, you really nail it. The movie gets bogged down with a lot of subplot. That's the problem. Like, they kind of over-engineered it. The original is a very simple film, actually. it's It really is. It's, there's not much, like, the, the dialogue almost kind of goes away once they once they make it to the Sawyer family home. There's almost, there's very little dialogue left in the film. Like, it, it just t- sort of sort of moves into this this terrorizing descent into some in, in this fever dream it's it, it, it gets crazy and and the only the only dialogue that matters at that point is is what the what uh, the hitchhiker and drayton are up to like they're just kind of torturing this woman into into the into the final heights of terror uh but you, you get so much like plot and there's more plot there's other subplots too there's like the whole baby subplot that goes on in the reboot that's like I also, I don't know why, you know, like I get like, I guess I know why she wants to save this baby from this evil family. But it's like it just takes up more time. I want to see a horror movie. This did not feel like a horror movie at all, like at all. It really felt more like a thriller, an action thriller is I think what I was what I was dealing with for the most part. There's a couple of chainsaw deaths. I think uh, Kemper, who is is the is the the leading man in the, in the movie, like he gets probably the most the most horror happens to him directly. Uh, that everybody else gets picked off, but not in any way that's like notable. Kemper's the one who gets hit over the head, um, and he gets his face taken off. But by the time you get to that stuff, you're it's just sort of like uh, okay, like what what at what at what time are we here? When are we gonna wrap this up? Well, and you don't want to be that way with a horror film. Yeah, what? here's the thing. What they did with this remake, and what this is really what it comes down to, is they tried to turn this into a straight slasher movie where you're where your protagonist, your antagonist being uh, Leatherface is basically, you know, chasing after the kids. And that's not really what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was. Yes, Sally in the original eventually gets away and runs away and they chase after her, but that's in the closing, like, ten minutes of the movie. That's not how you spend the majority of the movie. The majority is getting to that moment at that dinner scene where it's just so uncomfortable with Grandpa and the hammer and her screaming and shrieking and, oh, my God, it just sticks with you. It's just so eerie and creepy. And then, and then again, and I and I go back to this: the way it's done right, you know, and you could call this a remake in its own way. Is House of a Thousand Corpses when the kids show up, you know, to the to the Firefly House, and and you know they're putting on skits for them, and they're you know they're you know they're 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 just quietly luring them into this trap, and and you just this uneasy feeling of that kind of like it's almost like that dinner scene in a way, uh, you know, where it's just you know it's coming, you know something bad's mm-hmm. gonna happen, but they're setting it up so well. And here, there's just none of that. It turns into a chase movie. As you said, it turns into an action movie where they're literally, it's Leatherface chasing kids around the farm. And, like, you figure at this point, like, when they do the prequel, which we're going to get into in a second, when they get in the prequel, like, you figure this is a family, if they've killed what they, they say in the third, in the, in the, re, in the, uh, in the prequel, they say they've killed 33 people. Okay, by this point, if you've killed 33 people, you better be better at than this, than, or you're not going right. to get away with it. Because as shitty as you are as keeping a hold of these kids, the way they can get away from you no one's actually gonna like you're gonna get captured in about two seconds flat because 
every every single person outside of Kemper gets away almost. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like they, yeah. It's like everyone else gets away in some way, shape, or form. Like, they leave the one kid just hanging, dangling there, and she ends up stabbing him, which was one of the most ridiculous dumb scenes in this entire movie uh and then and then she she drags morgan out of there and then he sacrifices himself to save her. and then aaron the, the hero the jessica bill character chops off leatherface's arm with a hatchet which had to be i mean with a meat cleaver and i was like this is this is so dumb like it's so first off and I, I know I understand it's movies. We're not you know dealing in realism here, but uh, because I actually remember seeing some of some special about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they talked about how the chainsaw would actually be one of the worst weapons you could actually have in a horror movie, the way it stalls sure. and things like that. But uh, but it's a cool it's a cool effect. Uh, but like her, literally, she chopped in his arm three times and, and she chopped his arm off. I'm like, okay, first off, that ain't happening. <laughs> You're not severing someone's arm in three three whacks with a with a meat cleaver like that, especially a guy as big and as, as strong as Leatherface. I'm sorry, it just ain't happening. You might cut him, but you're not going to literally lop his arm off, and you're definitely not going to do it with as clean margins as she did in this movie. Uh, and I know, yeah. again, I, I'm, I'm attacking the realism, but I'm just like, there's things that like you scratch your head or you roll your eyes at, and that was the big one for me. Well, that's some that's something that's like, okay, I like I, you could get me to that point if you had led me there, and they didn't lead you there, right? So, Jessica, Jessica Biel spends a lot of this movie just sort of like walking around going, what's going on? Like there, there's it like it, she's not being tortured like like poor Sally. Like what, once things get going, like Sally watches her brother get murdered by Leatherface and she has to run away. She gets chased down. She gets picked up by Drayton. And, you know, and then the horror just continues for her. Jessica Biel's not like that. She's sort of sneaking around and getting away as best she can. And, and, and like it's not work- <laughs> it's just not working out. If you had set something up, if you had scraped away a lot of that subplot, which I'm learning the more and more we do this podcast, subplots are not necessary like you think they are when it comes to horror films. They aren't they aren't you need to get to the meat and potatoes, right? So they don't get to that. If they if they had kind of established something that like that maybe Jessica Beale's character has some sort of a uh, a, a you know a, a, a she doesn't like blood or something like something that would make her need to make that choice to go. I'm just going to chop the shit out of this guy's arm. Cause I have to out of desperation. Um, you know, you bring, bring the character to that point and you might have me, but they didn't do that. They kept, they just kept pushing subplots at us and it just got bogged down to the point where by the end you're like, okay, well his arms chopped off. That's going to be weird for the next movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> which by the way, I mean, we might as well, I guess we might as well get into it. Um, is there anything that we want to touch on before we move to the beginning? Well, it's just before like, we, before we leave this film, I, I think I think what you said is perfectly stated. It felt like less of a horror film and less of more of an action movie. And Leatherface yeah. was almost a secondary, you know, point, like, second. a secondary character. And, and and there was no like again the the crazy was just dripping off of the Sawyer family from the hitchhiker to to the, you know, the dad, whatever he was like, you know, that, you know, that, that particular character Drayton, like that whole thing, like that, that yeah. there was enough, there was just so much crazy dripping off those characters, man. You were terrified of all of them. And in a way, by the time you actually sit down to dinner, you can kind of tell their ter- your Leatherface is kind of terrified of them because he's kind of like the, right. you know, you can kind of see who's the real, you know, the real monster in this family is they're using him as a weapon, but he's kind of like a simple, you know, like you can tell, like he's not mentally all there and they're very much using him as like their weapon because he's obviously the big, strong, you know, kind of guy. 
And there was just none of that. Now, I will say, again, I'll give credit where credit's due. I'm a big Arlie Ermey fan. Obviously, Full Metal Jacket's yeah. a tremendous movie. Uh, he did a really, a really, it's a bad comedy, but it's a great comedy called Saving Silverman, uh, which yes. I love. It's such a dumb movie, but I love that movie. Uh, he's yeah. great in that, and obviously he's gone, so the late, great Arlie Ermey. He's a great actor. Uh, I loved him a lot. So he's like kind of like the saving grace of both of these movies, but... The problem is, is you have him and he is very much the evil kind of like sadistic guy, but nothing else really works. None of the other characters really work. And, 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 and even Leatherface, like you forget it's Leatherface. They keep calling him Tommy and you see him without his mask off. Like you're root- all the things that are supposed to like terrify you about Leatherface. They just take away and like, they just, they try to explain it too much. And, and I don't need that. I'm glad you brought something up because I didn't want to breeze over this and I, I should have had it in my notes. So did it did upset you that you saw uh, Leatherface's real face? You didn't like that? No, I did not like that. See, I and I remember at the time everyone going, oh, my God, they, they, they revealed they revealed his face. It didn't bother me. It actually didn't bother me. But the, the problem was, is that it it's it's inconsequential to the reboot. It really yeah. is like, yes, you see that his face is mangled and all that stuff but at the end of the day it, it had no con- it had no consequence to the film it didn't really matter i just saw him with his mask and that wasn't enough in the beginning or the, the beginning is is the next film we're going to talk about they actually make that a factor in the film that i, they, I think i think the the, the texas chainsaw the beginning is a is a better movie overall because i think they at least lean into their story elements a little bit better they don't just try to throw a lot of stuff at you they try to connect it yeah, and they, you know, and, and I think, you know, like I said, there is an element, you know, again, when you, like, one thing that I've heard, and I remember listening to Quentin Tarantino talk about this, he did a podcast uh, with uh, with Eli Roth for the, uh, for his History of Horror series, and, uh, and, and they did it, and it's like an hour and a half podcast, and I could listen to Tarantino talk for six hours, I love listening to him talk, but he was so much, he loved the Halloween series, but he also talked about, like, one of the things he hated the most was how they transformed Halloween and they made Michael Myers, you know, Laurie's brother. Like, that wasn't a part of the original movie. And then to make the sequel, they added that in to, like, keep the story going. And he, he never liked that. Whereas Rob Zombie, I heard, you know, obviously, when he remade Halloween, he, th- he, he took it to a different level with the whole brother-sister thing. Now, I'm on board with the whole brother sister thing i thought it was a really cool twist especially the way the rob zombie kind of explored that in his remake that's a remake right. i enjoyed i enjoyed the halloween I liked remake it. uh that's a good example of that where they, they they took it to a different level and they explain why it's there and you kind of understand that connection and, and the brother sister thing makes sense yes it is still a random act of violence but that doesn't mean he doesn't get to go back to where he came from which was his sister so that made sense. I got all that. I understood all that part of it. And so it, it, it kind of laid into the, to the plot of the entire movie. Just like I've, I've complimented Freddy, the whole Nightmare on Elm Street thing. You know, you had that backstory about why Freddy is the way he is, who's he seeking vengeance on, and why he's seeking vengeance on them. That all makes sense. I get it. Same thing with Jason, you know, Cramp Crystal Lake. They didn't pay attention. He drowned. There's certain backstories that create and make characters. I understand that. With Leatherface and movies like this, and I go back to Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses, which I've said, again, not to you know, belabor the point, but you know, Devil's Rejects might be my favorite horror movie of all time, which is very much a, you know, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre homage, if anything. Uh, mm-hmm. I, we don't know where the, the Firefly family comes from. We just know they're evil and crazy as shit. 
And I don't necessarily need to know every origin of that. So with the beginning, I agree. It is a better movie. But even the opening, when they're showing the the closing down of the slaughterhouse and and, and they're making it so obvious with Leatherface when they're like, hey, you big freak, we're closing down. Like, come on. Like, that is so heavy handed. You're just like, you're just like, you're literally like telling us what's going to happen next. And it's like. The beginning of the first one, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when he says, my family's always been in meat. Like, that is such a creepy line. Yeah. And then you understand that they, like, ran the slaughterhouse and things like that. Like, they could have easily taken... Again, I agree. The beginning was a better movie, and there were elements of the beginning I did enjoy. But they could have taken that opening scene and just shown that the entire Hewitt family worked there. And that's all they had to do. You right. know what I mean? They all worked at this meat factory, and that's what they did. And then you see them kind of scatter out into this, like, little town where, you know, they all kind of, you know, basically own and operate this little town. Like, that's all you had to do. I don't know why they had to do the whole, we're shutting down the plant, you big freak. Like, it was just so, like, <laughs> over the top and obvious. Well, I, I, I'll defend it a little bit. I, and I say a, a defend it at, in, in a way that, like, I could I could at least appreciate uh, the beginning for, for having themes. Because I think that's the problem with the reboot. The problem with the Jessica Biel one is it doesn't really have a theme, if you think about it. And a good horror film has a theme. It, it, ha- it has something under its skin that, that, that carries you through the movie. So at least in the beginning, what they decide to do is show you how the how the Hewitts. By the way, I don't even know. I, I I looked far and wide. I couldn't figure out why they changed the name to the Hewitts as opposed to being the Sawyers. Uh, did you find anything? No, I just assumed they were trying to make it their right. own film, and that was you know why they. I don't know why, but yeah, that's that's what they went with. So so at least in the beginning, what they do is they say, you know, here is a town, that, and very and this is very much. It's done in a much simpler, much better way in the original film, in the seventy four version. But in this film, they do they do explain why a family becomes desperate enough to become cannibal killers. At least at least they at least they like set that up. I can give them that. I'll go. I'm giving them credit. Going fine. Okay, set it up. Uh, you know whether you like the way they set it up or not. Okay, that's fine. That's everybody's got their opinion. But it, but it was one of those things where I was like, I can at least appreciate that they that they that they show you how to how these people got to who they are and it, let's 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 be honest the title is the beginning so how does this begin well this is how it began it began with a a town that was on its last leg and a family that is sort of on the they're already pariahs in the community to begin with right so leatherface was found in a dumpster he's horribly deformed he spent his entire life being picked on um, you know, he, he, and he's just this brute who, you know, chops meat at the at the meat packing plant. When the plant shuts down, there's nothing left of him, and he finally snaps. It didn't make any sense why that dweeb, like, thought he was going to get tough with Leatherface. There's no <laughs> chance. I mean, the, this is this is actually I will say this. The, the, uh, this is the probably the 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 most imposing Leatherface I've ever seen since Gunnar Hansen. Um, uh, it's Andrew, uh, Briniarski, who's, who's been in a lot of great movies actually. And he's, he's a rather big, intimidating guy. Like, at least I appreciated that and how this movie starts, the beginning starts by kind of focusing on Leatherface because I didn't get any of that in the, with Jessica. So this one, it's like, let's start with Leatherface and at least let's show how, uh, how bad of a motherfucker he is. Yeah, and, and like I said, you can give me an origin story, which, you know, obviously what they're doing in the beginning, you can give me that, but this one just to me felt too heavy-handed. Like, they're going over the top with oh, it. Oh, Like, is. I understand, like, 
I agree. Like, you can give me the whole meat, you know, the working at the meat plant, like that whole thing, working at the slaughterhouse. I get all that, and I understand, but they just, they were so heavy-handed with it, it just kind of ruined it for me. And I will say, and I'll give you credit, you mentioned the actor who did this. I've been a fan of his. He did a movie back in the 90s called The Program. Do you remember The Program, the football movie? The, the program college was football good. Movie? He's also in Higher Learning. Yeah, he's also in Higher Learning. He's a great, he's, he's a great physical, like, big actor, man. He was also yeah. in uh, Any Given Sunday. He's in that movie as well. Uh, Batman Returns. Yeah, so he's actually in a lot of movies, and he's actually done a good job, and he has that kind of physically imposing form to him, uh, which definitely works. But like I said, you can do it. I agree. There's a way to do it to show that, but but there's also a way to just bludgeon the audience with it. Like I said, it's not. <laughs> is it consequential to the story? Does it really matter? And that's again where I'm lost. When, when you talk about, and I, I keep going back to Freddy as an example of a character where you need that. Like when they went into part three and they talked about, you know, his his mother was a nun trapped in a in a in a in an asylum and she was you know repeatedly raped and, and Freddie was the result of that and, and you know, he was just evil incarnate from birth. And and then you understand that and they play it back into the larger plot of how they go after Freddie in that movie. Like it all ties together in that movie. Like they all they everything they do with Freddie in that movie, at least in part one and part three and even part four to a certain extent they start tying together his origin story with how he became who he is, who he is, and how you kill him. None of that matters in this movie. None of that, like, none of that really matters in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I understand you're trying to give context because you're doing this quote unquote called the beginning, but really all the beginning was was just basically setting up things that showed in the other movie, like how uh, Uncle Monty got his legs chopped off, which was right. which was so ridiculously stupid, uh, <laughs> because it, because he's in a wheelchair in the, in the first one, and so they had to show how he got in the wheelchair, uh, you know, and they're just so heavy handed. Like they had to show, like, okay, so he wasn't really the sheriff. We have to show how he was the sheriff. Like they literally right. just took parts of that first movie and they just stuck them in the in the beginning to like show how they got there. Now you can make a prequel, and there were elements of the prequel I enjoyed where. You know, again, it felt more genuine to the original film, especially that yes. scene uh, at the house with the two guys who were going into the army or who were going into the draft, where it's Arlie Ermey's character literally torturing the one kid, and he tells the story about how he was a POW in Korea. And you know, one of my favorite parts is when he says, uh, "He says, so what are you gonna do, boy? Are you gonna eat?" Or he said, "Are you gonna eat, motherfucker? Or are you gonna be the motherfucker who gets ate?" You know, like that's a re taunting yeah. him, telling him to do push ups, and, and the brother's over there, like, you know, just watching his brother get kicked and tortured. That felt more genuine to that dinner scene where it's just uneasy, and you're like, God, you can't get away from it, and he's just torturing these guys. That worked. But then again, they blow that too because they just refuse to go any further. And, and, and like it takes till literally the last like 20 minutes of the movie for them to finally kill the one guy. You know what I mean? Like I there's know. no death yeah. until that point. It's just like, come on. Yeah. You know, listen, the, the beginning, it has its strength. It has its strengths, but it has the same weaknesses as the first one. Um, it's a little less slick. Actually, I actually prefer the cinematography in the beginning as opposed to Daniel Pearl's cinematography in the reboot, which is crazy to say. But, um, you know, uh, I like the cinematography in the beginning. It's grittier. It feels dirtier without having to, like, cover everybody in grease and muck and even though they do a little bit of that but everything all that stuff is kind of dialed back a little bit and you get more into the the horror elements i think it's i think it's much more of a horror film than the the jessica beale reboot ever was it's it's still got a lot of action elements it's still got uh, still got some laborious subplots like the biker subplot which 
I'm kind of a sucker for because you know you and me are both huge Sons of Anarchy fans. So anytime you can get some bikers into a movie, like I'm down and I like it. But I'm biased. Like it didn't. I can't tell you that it added to this movie. <laughs> but I like that there were bikers with guns, and I'm like, oh, maybe they can. And I remember in the theater watching this and going. I hope that biker and those guys fucking go at it. Like, it'd be so cool for bikers to fight the Sawyers. Like, I'd just be into that. I would, it, it didn't matter. It still didn't matter to this film. But the film did have, to me, more horror elements to it. It did have, to me, uh, more gore that you could even talk about or, you know, credit. Uh, it felt more like a horror film, whereas the first one did not. The first one, I, you know, I, I sat and watched it the other night for this podcast, and I was like, man, this is not even a horror film. <laughs> whereas this one, they sort of went, hey, so we had all this success with the first one, but you know, you know, they brought in a whole new director, a new writer, all that stuff, and I'm and I'm sure they were just like, can we make this a horror film? Because the last one was kind of just, I don't know, it was like a like a Michael Bay highlight reel. Yeah, it was like I said, you know, I, again, like even the you know, you know, it's funny the biker subplot. What it made me think it was Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, the random yeah. bi- the random bikers just showing up and then like getting butchered just <laughs> so we can have a higher body count. It felt very much like that. Like they stuck that in there in the middle with the girl finding the biker and then telling him that his girlfriend got killed. I literally yeah. was like, hey, you just lifted a plot out of Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Uh, yeah, it's just like I said, again, I, I'm, I'm, I definitely am taking a dump on the beginning more than probably I should because there were elements of this movie that worked. But I also, you have to understand, I watched them in order, meaning I watched them in the order they came out. So I watched the first one, the, yep. the remake, and then I watched the beginning. And really, that's like, you know, that's, you know, that's when I say it's taking a step up from that movie, that's not really a great compliment because the, the remake was so bad that when I got to the beginning, I was like, anything could be a saving grace in this movie. And, and, you know, and like, again, there's just elements of like, they hammered you over the head with the whole drafting, the Vietnam drafting. They hammered you over the head with that so many times. And I, and and again, at least, at least that part of it, the thing that they decided they're going to hammer you over the head with in this movie, at least it paid off because when he's torturing the brother with the other brother tied up and he does the saran wrap around his head, which was, that was probably well. I don't want to ruin a later segment. That was you know like the saran wrap thing, like that whole that whole scene. The Arlie Ermy torturing the two brothers at the house is definitely the most genuine Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment of these movies. And then later in the movie, they finally, I guess somebody finally said, "Hey, why don't we actually have a freaking dinner scene that looks like the original? <laughs> You're gonna set that up." And so then they set him down to dinner and they're serving, you know, what we assume is parts of the biker in a stew. And they kind of, because in the first one, they just completely gloss over they're supposed to be cannibals. Like, they don't even yeah, mention no that. Uh, that the second one, they actually bring that into it, uh, or the, the beginning, I should say, the prequel. They bring that into it and then they're sitting at dinner and nothing really happens. Like, they're literally, like, <laughs> the one girl's been tortured, the other guy's laying there, like, half dead and the the mom is there and Arlie Ermey's there. But again, there's no dread there's no feelings of like uneasiness like none of that existed like they just could not recreate it and and again and i'm not trying to just you know go back to this but you think about the way that you know rob zombie did it with house of a thousand corpses when you think about you know introducing you know otis and 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 baby and all just there's so many uncomfortable moments in that in that in that movie where you just see it coming man you know it's coming you know it's gonna go bad for these kids 
And this one, it just didn't feel it. There was no threat. I mean, they, they stuck in a bunch of, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be like, you know, biased against age here, but they stuck in a bunch of old women. Like, they're not threats. There's not threatening moments in the, you know what I mean? Like, at least with the hitchhiker, yeah. he was crazy and Drayton was kind of crazy and there was like this physically imposing nature to them and Leatherface was obviously scared of them. They never introduced really any of that into these movies. If if we could if we could resurrect rewrite of the living dead, you would you would make the Sawyer family first of all younger. Yeah, sorry, we're not being ageists here, but yeah, uh, two old ladies are not gonna work as intimidating. Um, make a few people in the Sawyer family or the Hewitts in this case that um, that are actually scary, scary. Like they have to be scary. Like Arlie Ermey's character Hoyt is intimidating, but. You know, he's going up against the Vietnam vet, right? This kid, Eric, has already seen a tour of Vietnam. He's seen some shit. Like, at least that subplot, as laborious as it is, I mean, it goes on forever before it ever pays off. But once it does, at least he's strong enough. He's seen enough. He can get saran wrap around his head and kind of, like, keep his wits about him and stuff because he's been in Vietnam. And Arlie Ermey's on the other side, and he's been in Korea. Like, there's something to that, at least. But, like... But push it farther. Go like if this movie was pretty gory. Like make the dinner scene terrifying. Like start cutting limbs off. Like okay, let's if we want to do the this whole art of war thing, then let's just start chopping fingers off in front of people and seeing them freak out or something. Give us something more. Like don't you know what this kind of these movies, both these movies, the beginning and the reboot, to me felt like a, like almost like a Charles Bronson movie from like the late seventies. You know, it's like that's stuff you would just see in his movies. Like th that's how far this movie goes. And those movies were, you know, thrillers of their day. They weren't horror films. It was just a guy and a lot of violence. And that's kind of all this is. And again, even in the second one where you get more Leatherface, you certainly don't get enough of him. And I, I will later on, we'll have a discussion about this Leatherface in particular, but overall, both these movies suffer from being far too slick having way too much uh, subplot, especially for the main characters. Like, you know, what was so great about uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw, the original, and Texas Chainsaw 2, both Toby Hooper films, is that we don't get into a lot of the backstory with our main characters a little bit. You get a little bit in part two, just a little bit. It's about surviving mad, like mad, crazy people, like insane people. Like I think about, we, we, did, a, we did Texas Chainsaw, The Next Generation, that was our previous episode. At least the next generation, the, that family's insane. Those <laughs> people are crazy. It did, they didn't do it right. It was a bad movie. But at least you're like, oh, yeah, they are They are in a, in a house with a bunch of nuts. And, boy, they need to get out of there. But we didn't get that in these films. Yeah, not at all. And I will say, uh, you know, again, not to just keep, you know, kind of keep chipping away at this. But, yeah, like with the dinner scene, like, again, it felt like almost every like I'll, I'll take one scene in particular then we'll get into our categories when the scene when he's got matt bomer's character which i'm a big matt bomer fan great actor and i think yeah, he was bomer's one of the highlights great. of this movie uh tied him down to the table and when they had the scene where he cuts off matt bomer's face now if you're going to cut off a face and steal it for your own matt bomer's the one to do it because that that is a <laughs> handsome man okay if that's you're going right. to cut off somebody's face that's the one to do it that was a good scene that was a good like introducing leatherface creating his own mask of human flesh that is an origin that makes sense that is an origin yep. that make that you do he went from a mm -hmm. literal leather mask into a, hu a mask of human skin. That was perfect. 
But the earlier stuff where he's cutting off his forearms and peeling back the skin, that was just done for shock effect. There was no point to any of that. They're just doing it to shove in some gore and torture porn. Like, that's all it was. There was no purpose to that beyond, like, we're going to show you some skin and some really uneasy skin being pulled off of forearms and blood and shrieking. And that's, that's all it was. It served no other purpose. And there was no other joy being begotten from that. You know, there weren't, there wasn't, I understand, like, they're crazy. They're not really going to make a point. But even with, like I said, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everything they did was for a a insane purpose, but an ins- but a purpose. You know what I mean? And there's just they yeah. literally are, they're ch- chopping off pieces of this guy just to have gore, and and that doesn't work for me. No, it's a lot of flash. It's a lot of. Um done for effect it's very action movie music video michael bay which is what happens when you give those particular creatives uh a turn at the uh, one of the most important horror franchises of all time now granted that doesn't mean i'm gonna do a great job if you hand it to me i would probably say no i probably would but you know these guys tried it and ultimately they were just kind of stuck in a late 90s early 2000s mode where it's like everything's gonna be slick Everything's got to be too cool for school, and that's not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Not, not at all. Not at all. All right. With that being said, we got a lot of categories to get to tonight with these two particular remakes. Much like the previous episode, we're not going to do two movies worth. We're going to kind of combine them for our favorite categories of both movies together. So we're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on Rewind of the Living Dead with best performance from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning. So Patrick... What was your best performance from these two movies? Uh, This was an easy one. And also, I should say that this is the first time in the entire franchise that we have some continuity between two films, like some true continuity, because it's almost all the same cast as far as the Sawyers are concerned. So my best performance went to R. Lee Ermey as Uncle Charlie, a.k.a. Sheriff Hoyt. First of all, the guy's a phenomenal actor. Like, the guy just has the chops. You put him in front of a camera, you let him do his... You probably get some lines, but then you let him do kind of the Ermy deal, and he does the Ermy deal, and he it pays off. Like, he is that guy. He just happens to be that guy in the wrong film. That's There's nothing There's nothing to fault with his acting. Uh, he's, he's magnetic on screen. So I got to give it to Arlie Ermy. Yeah, I mean, listen, I would love to sit here and I always try to like alternate picks so we don't just talk about the same <laughs> thing, but he really is the star of these movies. And as I said earlier, I'm a big fan of Arlie Ermey. I think he was tremendous. I mean, listen, you can watch Full Metal Jacket. I mean, that is, I mean, I'm I'm still like, it bums me out. He didn't win more awards for that role. I mean, he was so damn good in that movie. And I rewatched that movie fairly recently. And man, does it still hold up? Uh, he yeah. is so damn good in that movie. And, and yeah, he is the star of these and he is kind of like the saving grace of both movies. His his intimidating kind of craziness and he doesn't go full on crazy he's more intimidating but again you can take that again comparing it to Devil's Rejects when you think about Otis you know in Mm -hmm. Devil's Rejects you know yes he is crazy but he's also really intimidating he's really just terrifying with the way he kind of approaches things and the way he talks to you and and, and everything so like he really is a star side note by the way want to give credit where credit's due in the second one Lou Temple makes an appearance as the original sheriff who gets killed by uh, Arlie Ermey's character. And Lou Temple, of course, was in Devil's Rejects. Uh, He's the guy who says, uh, please, mister, this is insane. And uh, and then, of course, my favorite all-time line from Devil's Rejects is when he says, uh, boy, next words that come out of your mouth better be some brilliant fucking Mark Twain shit because it's definitely getting chiseled on your tombstone. Uh, (laughs) Lou Temple, man. And he gets his face ripped off in, in, 
the devil's rejects. He so does. Very, very Texas Chainsaw. He does. But anyways, yeah, Arlie Army is the star. I mean, he's really the saving I, grace of these two movies. He absolutely is. It it, it, it brings up something. Has Arlie Ermy, because we talked about, we just you just talked about uh, uh, Bill Mosley's Otis. Have Arlie Ermy and Bill Mosley ever been in the same film together? It's a good question. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I have to look because, that up. Sadly, obviously, I, Arlie Ermy's passed, yeah. so I'm not sure if they did or not. It's Yeah, it's not going to happen now. But boy, like thinking about the way those two can play those characters, imagine having a movie with Otis and and Uncle Charlie in the same film. Like, how badass of a film would that be? Yeah. Like, that should have been Three from Hell. Yeah, <laughs> that was... Yeah, you know, listen, I, we're not going to talk about Three from Hell tonight, but my goodness, having those two guys would have been awesome on the on the same screen. And when I want to give credit, one funny scene I did like in this one, Arlie Irma pulls off his wet after he kills the sheriff and he goes back to the Hewitt house and he tries on the sheriff's shirt, but he's got his pajama <laughs> bottoms on and the mother's like, you look ridiculous. He's like, shut up, call me sheriff. That made me laugh. That was a good. That was a good line. Like he's got he's got some comedy chops in him. He does. Uh, all right. So uh, in this movie, we actually have uh, because again we're talking about two separate films. We're gonna have best hero and worst hero because there were obviously a lot of a lot of people in this movie in terms of the kids and the teenagers who are in peril in these movies. So we got best hero and worst hero. And again, there's a lot of them to pick from. So best hero in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remakes and the beginning. Who is the best hero in these movies? Uh, I'll give credit to these to these remakes for having a lot more substantive heroes that does ultimately slow down the films. But, you know, most of the characters are not fodder. They're they're all they all have their own little plots and 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 backstories and stuff as, as laborious as they are. But I picked for my best hero, weirdly enough, was Jordana Brewster from Texas Chainsaw the beginning. Because what what I was noticing over all the different heroes that I got in these two films, and I got a lot of them, and I got a lot of storyline. She's not given much in terms of like a storyline, but she is given one thing that almost none of the other characters get. She gets a choice. So she is in this situation where she can run away, given multiple opportunities to get out of the situation. Now, a lot of times you yell at the screen and just go, fucking turn around and leave. What are you doing? <laughs> Which is not like it's such a common thing for all of us to do when we watch horror films. But I appreciated that she had to make a choice and you could see it on her face in those moments. She would make it. She would be like, oh, my God, if I just run right now, like I'll survive. But she made the choice to try to save her friends. I appreciated that. I couldn't say that about anybody else. As much as all these people were heroes, they were just sort of like victims of circumstance they weren't trying to move in any direction jessica beale who was the lead character in the reboot she's just trying to kind of escape the whole time like that's really she's really just a final girl for 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 lack of a better term that's really all she is as much whether it was intentional or not jordana brewster's character had to make a choice and she made the choice to save her friends so i gave it to her yeah, I didn't really think about that until I saw your notes for this episode, and I thought, you know what, that's actually a really good point, because she, until the towards the end of the movie when they finally capture her and they set her up at dinner, she's not really part of the whole torture scenes you know she's she you know, she gets tossed from the car when they hit the cow and then she's kind of like away from everything and then she kind of sneaks up on the house and she's kind of seeing this stuff be done to her boyfriend and his brother and things like that so she's kind of like the outsider and then she decides as you said the very you know uh people under the stairs way you know to go back into the house to like you know try to save her friends uh is it a smart choice in this movie ultimately not 
Uh, but again, you're right. She actually does have a choice. Uh, for my best hero, I went in a different direction. Now, I said last week's episode, I, I admitted on uh, on the show, and I'm admitting it now, Jonathan Tucker, who plays uh, Morgan in this movie, uh, is yeah. a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine, but re-watching the movie, I'm not, I'm not saying this because he's my friend. I'm saying this because uh, I was trying to go in a different direction than your pick uh, because I didn't want to just have everything in the same opinion. So my best hero was Morgan in the original, in the remake, when he's you know basically dead on his feet and he sees that Aaron is, is has a chance to get away and he goes after Leatherface and like punches him and tries to tackle him and actually tries to put up a fight for a very brief minute before he gets impaled on a chandelier and then gets sawed up the up the up the uh, up the groin by the uh, the chainsaw, yeah. which sets up a really impressive chainsaw kill. Uh, which again, they they really went heavy on the chainsaw kills in these movies. Uh, but yeah, so I, I went with Morgan because you know what? He made one last valiant stand. Uh, as you said, he made a choice to try to save his friend. Didn't work out, but he tried to right. save his friend and he actually went after Leatherface. And that's one thing I appreciate it because again, in these movies, uh, you know, obviously people are going to die, but you're kind of like, you know what? In that moment, like at least take a shot, you know, at least try. And, and, you know, the guys for the most part in a lot of these movies are really just getting beat up and, and, and stabbed right. and torn apart. Morgan's the one guy who actually for a second fought back and obviously didn't work out well for him, but I give him credit for best hero because again, in that moment, a plot choice that actually worked, it made sense. He sees that he's not going to, he knows they're both not going to survive. He has a chance to save her. So he sacrifices himself and goes after Leatherface. I can appreciate that kind of plot twist and I can appreciate that kind of heroism. And I think it's what's also important to note is that again, like I said earlier, like all these characters are given a lot of like time to chew on the, on the <laughs> yeah. scenes. They really are. Morgan's character, played by Jonathan Tucker, Morgan's character is rather dweebish. He's sheepish. You know, he 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 cowers uh, compared to the rest of the guys. Now, the real Jonathan Tucker is a guy you wouldn't want to fuck with. Actually, I think he's <laughs> like he, he's he's like he's he's playing a good character here because he kind of disappears into the role. You don't realize that there's a badass under all that dweebishness. Um, but in that moment, he does make a choice, and and you go you go oh yeah, uh, Leatherface is gonna fuck him up, but. <laughs> He, but he, but he's like, you know what? It's it's the only way she's gonna get out of here alive because I know I'm dead either way. But I can probably save her. Yeah. So it's it's totally a legitimate pick. Yeah, it's a, it's a legit heroism moment. You know what I mean? Like it's a legit it is, totally. You know, as you, and and now let's talk about worst hero, which unfortunately we're not gonna disagree <laughs> in this funny. one. Uh, we could talk about a lot of them, but man, worst hero in this one. Uh, I'll let you kick things off because you had this pick, but man, and again, I don't want to keep tearing this apart, but I have a feeling we're gonna tear this apart pretty bad. <laughs> Uh, my worst hero comes from uh, Texas Chainsaw Reboot in 03. Uh, maybe, uh, hopefully one day I'm not sitting across from Jessica Biel and she's going to like hire me for something. I, this was the worst hero in this, in, in, this, in this new little franchise that we got, this new remake of Texas Chainsaw. Unfortunately, Aaron as a character... She's just she's just not a factor, and that's a problem when you when you make somebody the star when you when you when you kind of create a uh, an orbit for which uh, this franchise will move around, and and the character has nothing of note. I can't I can't think of one moment in this film that matters for the character of Aaron. It just doesn't matter. Like she's she's just fodder, and now and which is weird because like everybody else has a little something to that. I guess the worst thing that happens to her is that her boyfriend gets skinned alive and she finds Leatherface wearing his face. 
that's kind of the old, that's the the biggest arc in her whole story, right? You know, and then, and then there's the baby subplot, which again is like it's not that's not Jessica Biel's fault. That's just bad screenwriting. Um, yeah, like just nothing going on, like nothing to latch onto with that character. Yeah, and let's not forget the other subplot that stuck out there, which was when Leatherface is killing her boyfriend. He finds the engagement ring, and that goes nowhere. Uh, right. Like they could at least had her find it and like break down crying right. as she found the engagement ring or something. Yeah, that like, gave her something. yeah, I give her something, but yeah, they don't even pay that off. Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I, I want to say this, Jessica Biel. I haven't seen Jessica Biel in a ton of stuff. I'm not gonna sit here and say I've seen every movie she's ever made, but she actually is not a bad actress by any shape of the, you know, not any shape of the imagination. A few things I've seen her in, she's been solid. So it's not Jessica Biel's performance necessarily that is bad. Right. It's it's the character, and again, that can go down to the screenwriting and the direction here but yeah she's just and it's that's all over the place i mean literally she's like she captured she's not she's captured she's not she gets away she doesn't get away and then the whole uh, by the way and i i don't want it like another one like if you want me to name worst hero it's the whole jetta die character which was stuck in there which made me want to hit myself on the head with a tack hammer uh hey. like the whole jetta die thing like run away and like oh my god it was so bad yeah. uh and then like her going back for the baby uh this it was just so utterly dumb and like just the worst i mean it was just so bad and like again nothing felt like they were truly in peril the way they should have been and the other thing one of the things that made the original so great was the, the kind of claustrophobic nature of that movie where you're in kind of like these tight quarters everything inside that van inside that house yeah. you know inside that basement they're i mean they're outside for two-thirds of this movie uh <laughs> so yeah i mean yeah Je i'm sorry aaron aaron gets nothing i'll, I'll stop saying jessica beale because it's aaron right. the character aaron the character really does not work in this movie as a hero as a heroine uh she doesn't really save anybody but herself as you said she kind of you know basically saves her own skin uh, and the fact that she could chop off Leatherface's arm with three swipes of a meat cleaver, the only thing I can say is, man, you've been on some damn good 70s steroids. No shit. Yeah, I mean, that would have been kind of a cool setup, as if, like, she was some sort of secret, like, badass. Now, obviously, that's still weird and wouldn't make a lot of sense, but, uh, yeah, just, they weren't given anything to chew on uh, as, a, as a, for a character. It just... It just fell flat, and if and if the listeners out there are getting dizzy with all the names that we keep throwing out, yeah, we were too. <laughs> like, there's they put so many people, you know, in front of the Sawyers, and and so little of them. The Hewitts, the Hewitts, come on, yeah, the, the Hewitts. Hewitts. Sorry, yeah, I keep calling the Sawyers, right? They, that's another convoluted thing that they did in this to change the name for whatever reason. But they put so many characters in front of the Hewitts, in front of these killers, in front of these cannibals, and really only one or two actually have any like substance and that's you're gonna you're gonna lose if you can't commit to this or that and they didn't well they just it felt like they wanted to raise the body count that's all it really came down to they wanted to raise the body count and and the problem is you didn't really care about any of the characters who were getting killed if you're gonna uh, raise the body count, then make the killers like the the like so important to the film, and they didn't even do that. Yeah. Uh, so with that being said, we got you know some some more horrific horrific uh, categories to get to here. So we're gonna talk about best scare in these movies. Now, let me preface this category by saying, and I'm being completely honest with this, neither movie scared me uh, in in that traditional way. Uh, and, and because I'll set this up, we're not going to have our traditional, is it scary movie at the end? We're talking about these reboots and remakes. So it's a kind of a different take here. Uh, nothing really scared me about these movies. There were a couple of decent moments. So I guess that's what we're going to talk about. So best scare between these two movies. 
Uh, my best scare came from the first movie, actually, which I thought was incredibly low on any sort of horror vibes, but it did have one good jump scare to me, and that was Kemper uh, getting bludgeoned by Leatherface. Like it just, it, the timing of it was a proper good jump scare. So I had to give them that. Yeah, my best scare, and again, because nothing even the jump scares really worked, and and you know, like I said, the the first one had so many moments that I could say is best scare. This one didn't. Uh, but I will say the best one to me was what I mentioned earlier. It wasn't a scare. It was more of like a uneasiness. And, and that can be scary. Don't get me wrong. But the sure. moment when they're, when they, when he's saran wrapping Matt Bomer's face, man, that is like, you can feel that. That is real. That is visceral. You're like, oh my yeah. God. Cause you know, like I said, everyone has those kind of like nightmares of like ways you can die. And that one just, oh my God, just seems so hor- horrific. You know, your arms are tied up. You can't get away and you're literally suffocating like that. Just, oh, that, that got to me that moment. I was like, oh my God, that's so uneasy. And then when he pokes yeah. the hole in his mouth and saves him, he kind of gasps for air. Very good scene. That was good. Again, not the traditional scare as in, I was like, you know, oh my God, I was jump scared more of like an uneasiness. Like, oh, that's really, that's really hard to watch. Um, for I me. Think- yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, no, I think, I think you actually nail it with that one. I think, I think if tonally, if more of the film in like that, where it was like, okay, like, like, again, there was this whole big Vietnam subplot that was very tedious, but if, if you had leaned into it where it's like, oh, well, Arlie Ermey's character was in Korea and he did some fucked up things. So it's like, if he's like torturing them all, like, oh, like that would actually made it, that would have made this film like kind of unsettling. Like that was an unsettling scene. And we've talked about that in, in other uh, uh, films we've talked about on this podcast, being unsettling in and of itself can have that scare factor for you. It can work for you. And they just, you know, this was, this was one of those examples I wish they would have done more of that. Yeah, see, like, if they want to hear us rewrite it, Living Dead, if they want to give me an origin story that would have been more interesting, and again, I understand these movies are based around Leatherface so much, unfortunately, they didn't spend nearly enough time with Leatherface, uh, but if you want to give me an origin story that would have been cool, it's taking me with Arlie Ermey's character back to Korea, where he is forced to, like, become a cannibal and, like, kill people, and then maybe you find out that, like, yeah. maybe, like, he wasn't really in danger, he just decided he was going to eat his, you know, his fellow soldiers, and he's killing people and eating them, and then they send him back home, and he's just completely off the rail. He's a section eight. Like that would be a story I would watch. Like, yeah. Oh my God. Like watch how this guy just like d- dissolves into madness. Like very apocalypse. Now, you know, you know, yeah. uh, you know, that whole character, you know, like that thing, the, the Marlon Brando character, just watch Arlie Ermey's character, just descend into madness and become a cannibal. And then they send him home and he's just, you know, he's, he's already a lunatic yes. and now you're sending him out to Texas on a, on a veteran's pension. Uh, and he's going to be out there with his family, killing people like that's, an origin story i would watch oh what a great what a great segment of rewrite rewrite of the living dead fantastic work yeah Dan. uh all right uh best kill in these movies now they, they they went heavy on the kills and they tried to get really creative with their kills i'll give them credit for that i don't know that they worked but they definitely tried uh so what was the best kill and and the texas chainsaw massacre remake and the beginning my favorite came from the beginning which was Holden, who was one of the bikers, which I, you know, again, a, 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 another subplot we didn't need, but that I loved. Um, Holden falls over, very conveniently over the top of the chainsaw. They hold him down and Leatherface, you know, pulls the cord and, and, and cut right in half. And I was like, you know, that was probably the most creative kill overall. Uh, you know, it, it didn't make a ton of sense, but I liked it and uh, it worked for me. Yeah, that was a good one. I liked that one too. When I saw it, uh, when I saw it and I saw the chainsaw coming up, I was like, you know what? That's kind of convenient. He falls with the chainsaw, but yeah. 
But, you know, it, it made the most out of, of a bad situation, and they did it. And I thought they did a good job with that. Uh, for me, best kill, I'm going back to what I referenced earlier. I said it would come back up again. Here it is. Uh, was Morgan getting uh, chainsawed up the crotch. Uh, that was pretty creative, you know, because so much of this movie is about Leatherface. Well, unfortunately, I'll say this. They didn't play nearly enough with Leatherface's, like, imposing strength no. and size, uh, which is weird considering the guy who played him was obviously a very massive dude. Uh, but the moment when he kind of, you know, Morgan attacks him, tries to save the day, and he hangs him up on the chandelier, and then he just buzzsaws him right up the crotch. That was pretty yeah. horrific, and that was, again, a good culmination. The one scene in that movie that really worked was him trying to be a hero. It did, obviously, he knew it wasn't going to work, you know, but he tried to be a hero, and then his his reward is a chainsaw up the, up the wiener. Uh, that, was, <laughs> that, was a, that, was a, that was a worthy kill scene to me. Absolutely. It was actually it was actually my first best kill because I, I sometimes I'll write down what I think is going to be my best one. And I wrote that down because I watched that movie first because I'm watching them in order. And then I thought to myself, like, I have a good feeling we're both going to agree this is the best kill. And then, that, and then I picked Holden uh, from the beginning when I saw that. I was like, good. There's room for at least two kills in here. Yeah, there were. All right. Best gore. Now, again, I want to say this because credit where credit's due. We talked about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre a few episodes ago. And I would, you know, if you want to hear us, you know, literally fall over ourselves praising a movie go back to that one uh but we actually mentioned time and time again there really isn't much gore there's not much blood in that movie and it's kind of amazing when you think about a movie called the texas chainsaw massacre a lot of words in that title that make you think you're going to see some blood and guts and there really isn't any in that movie there's a lot in these they definitely made up yep. for it in these movies uh there's enough blood and guts for you know 10 movies in these movies so best gore in these uh in these texas chainsaw remakes so I went for um, I think Eric Eric is like laying on the table and he's you know he's being flayed and all that stuff and uh, he kind of looks up and back and he you can see the the biker chick that had gotten killed earlier by Harley Ermy she's kind of hanging from a meat hook or something and you can see that her legs have been cut off and there's some bone and some dripping gore I just liked it it wasn't even necessarily the most gory um, image that was in these films. But I liked how it looked. I liked I liked the whole aesthetic of it and all that stuff. So I gave it to the the hanging mutilated biker chick. Yeah, I went back to the uh, to the Matt Bomer scene, which I said, you know, I, I, there was really no purpose in, in flaying his arms off, as you just mentioned. <laughs> but him getting his face cut off to kind of create the first Leatherface mask that was a cool scene of gore. And again, it played back into the bit of the origin that actually made sense. Leatherface had a leather mask, and he's going to create a, a mask out of human flesh. And if you're going to make one, why not choose a really good-looking guy like Matt Bomer? And that's the face he decides to saw off. And that is, you know, kind of a disturbing scene. You see him cutting around very close up onto the onto the scene, and you see him kind of pull it yeah. off. That worked for me. That was good gore. And it was necessary gore because it served a purpose, which was it created Leatherface's mask. Uh, so, again, that's the kind of gore. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a big gore guy, Patrick. I'll be honest. Like, when it comes to horror movies, mm -hmm. I'm not like a guy who's, like, itching to see gore. I'm not like a gore guy, really. I, I appreciate a good gore scene when it happens, but I'm not one of those yeah. guys who needs it. Uh, and, and this one, again, they went over the top with gore in these movies, which, again, I wasn't grossed out. I was just like, why? But that one actually, again, it made sense. You understand why it's in the movie. Absolutely, and I, yeah, again, I will say that they even they tried as best they could to make that the 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 Eric mask 
kind of mimic the original mask. Like I go, oh, I could see how over time it would dry up and rot and start to sort of look like the mask I remember from the 1974 film. I, I gave it, I gave it a little bit of credit. It was, it was, I dubbed the scene overall. Yeah. And it was gory, very gory. Yeah. So let's talk about Leatherface because this is the first yes. time where we're actually getting the same actor in two movies to play Leatherface. Uh, which is a rarity. Again, we've talked about this numerous times before. They tried desperately to get Gunnar Hansen to come back a couple of times and never came to an agreement, which it's kind of weird to me. I keep reading that they're like, they tried to get Gunnar Hansen, they couldn't do it. They tried to get Gunnar Hansen, <laughs> they couldn't do it. Uh, obviously, this time around, they went with uh, Andrew Bry. Was it Brian Brynarski? Is that how it is? Is it Brynarski? Brynarski. Brynarski. Polish names. Yeah, Andrew Brynarski, and uh, and and he steps into the role uh, of Leatherface in these two movies. So, uh, also, I do want to give credit where credit's due. These two movies did actually use John Larroquette as the narrator. He was the narrator for the original 1973 version. He actually came back and did these two movies, which I did think was a nice touch. Uh, So, your opinion on Leatherface in these movies? I gotta say, so first of all, I think casting uh, Andrew was a fantastic idea because to me... Leatherface does need to be this imposing figure. Uh, Gunnar Hansen was was singular, you know, like we've talked about this before. You're not going to get another guy who can be what Gunnar Hansen was for the 1974 version. It was just pitch perfect. Uh, Brittany Arsky put, put some effort into his role. He campaigned for the role. Uh, he actually didn't get it. I, I, this is something I found in my research. They ended up telling him no. The guy that they got injured himself the first day on set and was actually had lied about his physical physical prowess and all that stuff. So he injured himself day one. They fired him and they called Andrew and they said, "Hey, uh, you still interested?" And he went in there and he and he did the role. He did all his own stunts. And uh, and when I think about the physicality of him, he is this big man. He's just you know he's probably three hundred pounds. Most of it muscle. I mean, he's he's just scary looking as a, as an individual. Never mind now throwing the leather face over him uh, and, and giving him a big chainsaw and a and a and a dirty apron and all that stuff. He embodies what is scary about Leatherface. The only problem is that these scripts don't give Leatherface the time to be Leatherface. Like that, you get bogged down with so many other things. It's like. I would I would shave this movie down to like some crazy some crazy Hewitts and Leatherface and make it those things because I thought they had a great guy there. Yeah, I mean they had like I said they they had elements. The problem is is that the the, the beginning didn't use him nearly enough, much less make him the imposing figure he's supposed to be when you first meet him. In the original film from the seventies, you're immediately terrified of him, and you never really got that in the in the. In the remake, it just felt like too much of it was just a classic slasher movie. He was the guy with the chainsaw chasing the kids around the farm. And that, it just didn't work. And they did a better job with him in the beginning, I think. They actually you know, did that. But once again, there's just not enough of him. And again, I'm not saying you need him in every scene. They didn't use him in every scene. And the other one, where you use him, you make use of him is what I'm getting at. And they just never really did that in these movies, especially for a guy... You know, six foot five, muscular, he impo- very physically imposing, definitely steps into that role as Leatherface. And, and again, uh, you know, like Leatherface is a tool, he, you know, and he's kind of supposed to be, he was, you know, very scared of his, of his, um, of the characters in the original. You know, you kind of find out that he's kind of like their weapon in a way, and he's very, like, you know, very cow, you know, cows down to them. 
uh, and, and just childlike. No, yeah, and none of that, none of that came across this movie. Like the whole thing, like I said, they didn't use him enough, and when they used him, it didn't work. And and so, I would say the beginning was the better effort. You know, they actually you know, again, you know, cutting off the guy's face and, and 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 you know the chainsaw through the biker and and you know things like that worked in that sense, but. Even that, like, again, he just, he just didn't, and, and I'll give credit to the ending, you know, like I said, it took long enough to get there, but they eventually killed the lead girl, you know, the one played by Jordana Brewster, when she's finally getting away, right. and, and that one was like, <laughs> another one that was kind of like, really, this is how you're going to do it, is him popping up out of the backseat, he's a six foot five dude, you don't notice that, uh, in the backseat, he pops <laughs> up and kills her, but it was cool, it was a cool kill scene with the chainsaw through the back of the seat. Uh, but again, I'm like, really a six foot five, like 300 pound dude. You don't just happen to glance and notice that in the backseat. Uh, but yeah, that is very true to the series though. You gotta admit like in the series, he like this giant man always pop up with a chainsaw blowing in like out of nowhere. And that is something that is actually very true to the series. Yeah. But it just, like I said, it just felt like reality was they just underused him in both movies and and the beginning, the beginning was better. But still not not really useful in the way that this character is supposed to be kind of the central theme of the of the killer in these movies. They Arlie Ermey became the star, uh, and he was again he was the saving grace. Really, thankfully, he was kind of like the the way it worked. But he became the central focus, not Leatherface. Could you imagine? Now I'm going to resurrect, rewrite the Living Dead yet again. But if it's if it the focus is indeed on Arlie Ermey, a hitchhiker type who kind of creates the the mania. And Leatherface and the and the relationship between a, a guy like Arlie Ermey's character, which is very militaristic, you know, very intimidating, like very good with words and like having this having this killing machine under his thumb, like the dynamic of those two actually would be great if you put, if you put a little more emphasis on that. And ultimately, what I'm saying is that I think Andrew Brynjarski's uh, portrayal of Leatherface is great. I just wanted more of it. I wanted more substance behind it because it is it is it is weird in like the whole slasher genre. But like Leatherface is uh, he especially in the 1974 version, he's something to study. He's something to look and 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 understand and try to get under the mask. You know, metaphorically speaking, get under the mask and understand why he is this killing machine. It's more interesting. To have the 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 mystery that surrounds it, and to try and you know channel it through uh, the other the other family members, and that was a missed opportunity in this. I, but I do I rate him as a very good Leatherface, my favorite behind uh, Gunnar Hansen. Obviously, Gunnar Hansen, there's he's singular. You're not going to get better than him. But if I got to give you a number two Leatherface of all time, as of right now, I haven't reviewed all the films yet. There's still more to go. But as of right now. It goes Gunnar Hansen and then Andrew Brynjarski. Yeah, and it's well. Here's the thing: I I, I would only disagree slightly because I think the guy who played uh, Leatherface in, in Texas Chainsaw Two did a good job because they introduced a little bit more of that character and, and kept him very simplistic. And we and we talked about what we liked about in that movie. I'm not trying yeah. to rehash that, but like they introduced him as kind of again very childlike. You know what I mean? Very childlike in, in his sensibilities. You know, he kind of gets a crush on the radio host, and you know he's kind of like you know, right. he, you know, he doesn't want to kill her. He kind of protects her in a weird brutal way uh you know that kind of thing and that, again that's 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 character development with a character that is so right. 
you know, so horrific, but you kind of, you kind of developed that a little further with that relationship he builds with the radio host in the second one. And this one, he's just the monster and, and he's not even like, a, they don't even build him into being a really good monster. Really. He's kind of a, a hapless monster in a lot of ways. Cause the first one, he gets his arm chopped off and the second one, he kind of gets outsmarted <laughs> by like everybody. Uh, and it's just like, I don't know. Like I said, I don't disagree. He's not, he's not a bad leather face, but he didn't have really good material to work with. And, uh, it kind of, it's kind of a waste of a good physical leather face. Again, this is far better than the leather face in parts three and four. Those were terrible part four, Ooh. especially, uh, but, Ooh. but in part, in part in this one, in the remake and, and then the other one, they actually had a good physically imposing leather face and they just didn't use them enough. Yeah. Unfortunate. So our final category uh, as we go into this, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 2003 and the beginning from 2006. Are these worthy remakes, Patrick? I can say for sure that the uh, the remake, the 2003 remake is not worthy, especially when it's considered like the remake. It's just not. It's like an action movie. It's a thriller. It's not. It's just not. It's not what we're there for. It's not what I signed up for. I will say that the beginning, starring Jordana Brewster, uh, is maybe the first earnest opportunity outside of the first two, the first two Toby Hooper films, to call it like a genuinely decent addition to the franchise at this point in time. We haven't talked about there's There's more to talk about. But as of right now, Texas Chainsaw 1, Texas Chainsaw 2, and Texas Chainsaw The Beginning are to me the only worthy remake, the only worthy, you know, ones to put into uh, the rotation at this point in time. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm just going to have to disagree on you the there because I really don't see a purpose for either one of these movies. I mean, you start with the, the <laughs> you start with the straight reboot, which is again, as you <laughs> said very eloquently, it turned into a just an action movie uh, with a final girl, and the final girl, you know, gets away in just the most hapless, like just ridiculous situations. And, and I mean, the entire movie, like I said, it literally turns into just a straight action movie. You know, she chops off Leatherface's arm. She runs over Arlie Ermey's character. Like, don't you know, you got to make some sequels here. Uh, just, it, just everything. <laughs> it was all set up in like a really bad action movie. And, and again, Michael Bay is terrible. I'm not a Michael Bay fan. Uh, it, it's, him being attached has pretty much told me everything I need to know. And listen, he was also attached to the Friday the 13th reboot. And I believe he was attached to the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. And let me spoil the lead before we get to those movies. Those suck too. Uh, so Michael Bay, <laughs> please, Michael Bay, stay away from horror movies. Uh, that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the beginning is better, uh, but you know, what's the, what, what, what scale are we grading on here? You know what I mean? Is it better? Yeah. But is it worthwhile? Did I, did I need that movie? Absolutely not. Did I take anything away from it? No. Uh, the only thing it took away from either one of these movies is I wish, Arlie Ermey was still around to chew up some scenery in movies, and, and he's obviously gone, and, and we miss him. Uh, he was yeah. a tremendous character actor, and I wish he had more roles to chew on like these two because he really was the saving grace of these movies. If there had been no Jessica Biel reboot, and I just gave you the beginning, would you think it would change your opinion a little bit? No, because the beginning, they, they didn't... If they treated it as a prequel to the original... Maybe, right. but they didn't. That's what I'm they, saying. Yeah, I mean, That's they they didn't. They they just they just like I said, like they, none of the characters are the same. Like outside, literally, leather they changed the name. Like everything was different right, for yeah, no right. real yeah, purpose. 
if they if they decided to give like an origin of like you know Leatherface and the Sawyer family, like how the Hitchhiker became the Hitchhiker, how you know uh, Drayton became Drayton, you know how Grandpa became you know the wheelchair guy, Grandpa, and maybe he was the real lunatic that kind of you know molded all these people. Maybe if I, they actually went in that direction, I would say yeah. Then I could say okay, at least you're you're giving me something original and new. And like I said with the whole Leatherface thing, or your idea, like if you're going to go in a completely different direction, make it where Arlie Ermey's character is like the military, you know, kind of controlling guy and he kind of keeps Leatherface on a leash and that's his weapon, you know, like that. Then give me something like that. But but tie it back into where like, you know, Arlie Ermey's character was uh, was one we didn't meet in the original and he died or something and then he hands him over to sure. Sawyer and, and, the, and the hitchhiker. I don't know. But yeah, no, no because yeah. because again, they didn't. There was so little tie back to the original. The care, and again, one of, at least the one thing they did get right in in Texas Chainsaw Three and Texas Chainsaw Four was the Vigo Mortensen character was kind of like the other like imposing guy to go along with Leatherface, and then you had Matthew McConaughey's character in the fourth one, kind of like the imposing. You know, Vilmer was kind of like the imposing, scary guy to go along with Leatherface, which Leatherface was almost non-existent in that movie. Uh, but yeah, like they, they just, Leatherface is, is yes, he is the intimidating, scary one, but you're also supposed to be scared of the other ones and you're scared of Arlie Ermey's character. But again, that's it. And, and it's a bunch of old women and one dude in a wheelchair. Like, it's just not, yeah. it doesn't work. It just didn't work. Well, I think the problem and you, you're, you're laying it out pretty clearly. The problem is that Texas Chainsaw, the beginning is boxed in by the Jessica Biel reboot. That's the problem. Like I think the intention behind the filmmaking of the beginning and 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 the the aesthetic and thematically, I think they were on the right track. But the problem was, they were making a follow up to the Jessica Biel one. If they hadn't been tethered by that, and had been able to explore the actual beginning of the Sawyers and trying to trying to pull some of the elements together, I think they would have had a better movie. You know that again, it's still not a great movie. But at the end of the day. When I look at the entire uh, roster of films under the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's the only other one outside of the first two that I'd bother watching again. You know, and, and I'm not going to like enjoy it, but I am going to enjoy Andrew Brynjarski's uh, uh, portrayal. I am going to enjoy Arlie Ermey. So there, there are things to take away from it, but it was boxed in by that reboot. And that reboot is just, oh. Ooh, and, ooh. Thankfully, uh, Blumhouse is coming out with a reboot pretty soon. Yeah, and let me let me close out on this. One of the original ideas for the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, the 2003 version, one of the early developments of this movie was they were going to bring back Marilyn Burns to play Sally Hardesty from the first movie, and she was going to recount the events of the film. And so you're going to see this woman in her older age, and she's going to recount what actually happened to her. And so it's kind of, it's a remake, obviously, but it's it's more of like a remake faithful to the original, except we're kind of right. seeing it from her perspective only. And then they just went in another direction entirely. And and I think about that movie, and I'm like, you know what? That's a re that's a remake. It's absolutely a remake. Yeah. But it's a it's a different. You're seeing it. I know we see a lot of the movie from her perspective, anyways, but. To see it in that way, what she saw, what she felt, how she saw it, kind of like in that like Titanic way where the old woman yeah, is telling the story, like, the like, like that, like that could have worked. That could have been something yeah. that you're like, okay, this is a remake, but it's kind of a kind of a remake yet not, you know, it is, but it's not. And then you're going to see a lot of the same elements, but you know, you, you, you make a few minor differences, things like that. I, I could see that, but 
Yeah, just not nothing. And I, it's frustrating to me. Like I'm sitting here, like thinking about. It. I'm just like, oh my god, all the ways <laughs> they could have done this, and they didn't. And, and like I said, that's part. That's part of the reason why we wanted to tackle these movies is because you know you start off with the bang with the first one, which is again one of the greatest films of all time, be regardless of horror. The second yeah. one definitely holds a place in history, and it's a fun movie, and it's an interesting movie, and I enjoyed it. Definitely didn't compare to the first one, but you can't really compare the two because they're completely separate movies or completely different movies. And then after that, it just, I mean, everything after part two is, like, so bizarre, and it goes in so many different <laughs> weird directions, and, like, there's no continuity. Uh, yeah, so it's a weird franchise. It's really a weird franchise. It's super weird, and, you know, we're and we're not done we're about to go into these side stories or, I mean, I call them side stories, but I think that our next installment is another double header and it's going to be Texas Chainsaw 3D, which uh, the title alone should tell you how I'm going to feel about that movie, <laughs> um, which is, which is a weird take on what, ha on what happens after almost directly after the events of the 1974 film. And then you have Leatherface, which is a, a child origin story of uh, of Leatherface, uh, the 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 titular uh, slasher himself. So I, a movie I know very little about, other than that. Yeah. So we still have some time left uh, before we eventually run up to Blumhouse reboot, which is going to be coming out. I'm guessing sometime next year in 2022. Uh, and I heard that they fired the director after the first week. So that happens. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't claim that that's going to that's a sign that something bad happens, but maybe it's a sign that actually it's going to be a better film. Cause they realized that guy didn't have the chops. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We got those two movies and then we are so we are also going to do a final wrap up episode to talk about the entire franchise. It's importance to horror and, and what they've, what's gone right and what's gone wrong. So we will have two more episodes to go in our Texas chainsaw series. We have next, our next episode, which will be the final two movies that are currently out there. Texas chainsaw massacre 3d and Leatherface, which is the, uh, the f I don't even know. That's I, I, it's the sixth it's an origin yeah, story. It's an origin story so yeah, so Leatherface, and that's a movie that came out in 2017 that I was completely oblivious to. Uh, so yeah, yeah, so we're gonna talk about those two movies on our next episode about the Texas Chainsaw, and then we will close out with one final episode, kind of wrapping everything up for the entire Texas Chainsaw Massacre series. So, with that being said, want to say a big thank you, of course, to everyone that tunes in each and every week, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, if you found us on Nerdcore Movement, Twitter, Facebook, whatever the case may be. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you're following us on Twitter. This is our current ongoing Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise series. But of course, our regular show, we review new movies, old movies, classics, not so classics, uh, everything in between. So if you ever have a suggestion, you ever have a request, please hit us up. You can follow me on Twitter at Damon Martin and you can follow you at... Director Patrick. And by the way, the reason we're even doing the Texas series is because somebody on Twitter asked for it. So we're yeah, giving it to you. Exactly. So if you do have something you want to know, please hit us up. Let us know. We will be more than happy to do that. Want to say a big thank you to each and every one of you that tunes in each and every week to listen to us. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise as we talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the beginning. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you next week. See you then. Peace. <laughs>